Kulakus. They were magnificent. Silky vanilla ice cream betwixt two oatmeal cookies that were just the right amount of crumbly. The perfect texture. Just oatmeal-y enough and not too sweet. Little cinnamon, little nutmeg. The entire sandwich was covered in chocolate, but not the brittle kind that cracks and falls. It had a fudginess to it, so it contorted to each tooth. And they had to warm up to you first. The deep freeze stopped you from scarfing them down too quick. You were sort of forced to savor them. It was that first summer, our summer on the phone in 2005. I was in Boston. You were in Los Angeles. I think it was one of the first times we talked. You'd asked me what I missed about living there in L.A., it was my beloved Kulikus. The year I left, though, Dodger Stadium stopped selling them. 98 was the farewell season. You couldn't find them anywhere else. And yet, you did. A couple of months after my beautiful eulogy, a case of Kulikus, packed in dry ice, appeared at my apartment door with a birthday card. The last one I ever ate came out of that box. The first one I ever ate came from the source. Opening day, April 7th, 1998. Dodgers versus Diamondbacks. Duly noted, memorialized as it should be, in the journal I found. Now, typically, I have a type, very specific, timeless and simple with classic good looks. Nothing garish or gaudy, God no. Just basic black, gridded with a pocket and strap, the size of a paperback. The little black dress of journals. This one, though, from my college semester in Los Angeles, is none of that. It was my first. It's what I thought a journal was supposed to look like. Bound in emerald green marble with matching fabric spine and embossed with gold, it looks like something off Liberace's desk. His daybook, maybe. And there's even more gold on the page tips. The thing actually shimmers. It wanted to be noticed. My mom had suggested I keep one. Just the basics about what I did and where I went. So someday I could read it and remember. Plus, there'd be fewer questions when I got home. I could just turn it into them at the end of the semester, something sanitized and safe, of course, and they could read all about it. It was mostly for them. That was the plan. It's the only time I ever completed one. I came just four pages shy of filling it. January to May, 1998. It was 20-somethings in SoCal with a hot tub. Oh yeah, we had a hot tub. I wrote about my first day of classes and my first day of sightseeing. Also, there was my first big event as a radio intern, the world premiere of the Spice Girls movie, Spice World. I know what you're thinking, and the answer is yes. Two become one. It's a beautiful ballad. We went to a taping of the Rosie O'Donnell show when she came to L.A. He and I both got koosh balls. Drew Barrymore was a guest. It happened just like that, just as quick. We worked its way into the story and our, and references to he, variations of the phrase, he's such a good guy, started to surface. Not a lot, but enough to notice. One night, we saw the guy who played Uncle Leo from Seinfeld in a grocery store. Now, we had an almost spiritual devotion to that show, but we were too starstruck to say hello. Mm -mm. We just stared. I wrote about that. And our weekend in San Diego. And our trips to Disneyland. I wrote about afternoons we went shopping. About spats and how we talked them out. I went on and on about his birthday, too how I took him to a Kings game and to dinner before his surprise party. It wasn't just that he and I did everything together. It was the way I wrote about it so conspicuously. It's like I wanted it to be noticed. Listen to this. I'm so lucky to have him. 
I let him get tipsy. We watched a movie and chilled for the night. I wrote all of these things, all of its couple speak. My favorite, though, is this. Quote, we wrestled. Don't know why, but hey, it was fun. End quote. And I finished it off with not just one because, you know, that wouldn't be enough, but two exclamation points. It's like I forgot that I was writing for an audience. It is worth pointing out, though, that that level of emotional fastidiousness, keeping feelings curtained and confined to something that folds up neatly and is in fact meant to be kept and used literally at arm's length and also doubles as a coaster, really indicates how far along I was in my development into a full-grown wasp. I never really forgot I was writing for an audience. I just let myself forget, conveniently. Had I read it on my last night, or my return flight, I might have kept it closer. Maybe. Instead, when I got back to Boston in May, the week of the Seinfeld series finale, I left it on the kitchen table near some mail. Then, with my life unpacked and a foot out the door, I shouted like it was an afterthought. If you guys find my journal, you can read it. And they did. I know because they told me the next day. But they didn't say more than that. Not for another couple of years, at least. They knew who he was. They'd met him. I wondered what they'd noticed. I took a great picture of him on the Ferris wheel at Santa Monica Pier. It was in the journal when I found it last week. He's wearing a baseball cap. And let me tell you, the boy could wear a hat. Tipped up a tad, it sat snug over his sideburns and just behind the ears that stuck out ever so slightly. It was so cute. The brim, like his dimpled smile that killed me every time, was perfectly curved over a pair of blonde brows and green eyes. He was tall, like me, but with toned arms and long, slender legs. His strut had a bounce to it. It became his thing, actually, the strut. His hat would pop up and down in a crowd as he walked through, shoulders back, chest out, messenger bag across, both hands on the strap. We shared a class freshman year. And we both worked at the radio station. And we had a mutual friend, so I'd seen him around. I noticed him. Sophomore year, I was his RA. This was all a year before Los Angeles, before the journal. Also, I was a terrible RA. Our friendship faded in, slowly. We didn't have a meet-cute. There was no charming first encounter. I only remember starting to hear it sometime in January of 97. When we passed in the hall or in the bathroom, instead of just, sup, he said, hi, and he used my first name. Most people use my last. I liked hearing him say it, but I couldn't explain why or why I even noticed it. My brain just tagged it for later inspection, the same way it tagged Ricky Schroeder from Silver Spoons, but not What's-Her-Name from Facts of Life, the blonde. Before I knew it, we were spending all our time together. Lunches, dinners, free time. We were best pals. It seemed like there was nothing we didn't have in common. Except one thing. Sports. The boy loved sports, but not the Huey Lewis album. Watching them, playing them, he couldn't get enough. Me, not so much. I tried, though. One afternoon, I suggested we have a catch with the football he kept in the trunk of his car, because of course he kept the football in the trunk of his car. Now. I know that's kind of hot, but then, eh. It did stir something in me, especially when he threw it. It was so effortless. He just leaned back, dropped his shoulder, 
and lobbed a perfect spiral like it was nothing. I definitely noticed something. But I told myself I just admired how athletic he was, how cool he was. Like in high school, when after spending the better part of a study hall studying the leg of a soccer player in shorts, I'd tell myself it was just that I admired how athletic he was. It wasn't that I wanted to be with him. I wanted to be like him, to be cool and popular, and to throw a perfect spiral. Something that just was not going to happen on that day. So, after multiple incomplete passes, we opted for a drive to the mall. The boy and I did love to shop. He was a jock, and he liked to shop. I'd never met a guy like this before. I didn't know they existed. Well, he could have watched Sports Center all day. He could have watched the Golden Girls all day, too. Or Seinfeld. That was the language we spoke, mostly in quotes, from our Thursday night ritual. And we liked all the same silly movies, too. Clueless, especially. We could do it line for line. We even found the circus liquor a year later. Ooh, Snickers. And he was a little goofy, too, like me. I loved making him laugh. The long, late-night chats we had on his couch. The one he permanently borrowed from the TV lounge. Terrible RA. And the ones we had in his car. Those were my favorite. That's when we talked about girls. And music. And classes. And whatever crossed our worried 20-year-old minds. That's when we told our stories. He always listened, too. Really listened. I'd never had a closeness like this with a guy. Not one my own age. It was new to me. And to him. Neither of us had brothers growing up, and most of our friends were girls. That was one of the first things we bonded over. He was confident in himself, but quietly. Charming, but never with an agenda. Ugh. And he was a great dancer. Like the lead from some romantic comedy, though. He was oblivious, completely oblivious to all the adoring eyes that followed his every move. When the end of the semester came and it was time for goodbyes, both of our eyes were a little pink, but he promised a trip to visit me in Boston, a promise he kept. Then I squeezed him tight and he squeezed right back. Once I connected the tape deck adapter to my Discman and put the CD in, you needed a lot of equipment to play music back then. And not just in the car, either. Everywhere. Once it was all connected and secured with a safety belt, you can't be too careful, I started my long drive home. With the volume on the car stereo and the CD player, knob and dial, both set to max, I blared that song, The Freshman, by the Verve Pipe. All my imaginary home movies of he and I, and the mental snapshots, they all played in my head. It was all very dramatic, very Dawson's Creek, though I didn't know it at the time. That show started in 98 when we were in L.A. We loved it. I was so Joey Potter. All I could think about was holding the boy's hand. That's what I really wanted. The way I'd seen my parents do. In the car, at the mall, on the couch. I knew what that might mean. Maybe. But it couldn't be the case. I didn't act like that. I despised Broadway, but I was terrible at sports. But I could hold my own when it came to following them. But I was great at gift wrap, and I was even greater in the kitchen. But I'd never tried on my mom's heels, and I was a terrible dancer. So many buts. But it was nonsense. All of it. Still is. But then, I had no reference. The people I knew, the characters, and all those caricatures... They didn't match me. This was 97. Seinfeld, remember? 
Not Will and Grace. Those bitches were fashionably late. But none of it mattered. I still wanted to hold his hand. And I began thinking about all those things I noticed the last few months. The feelings I couldn't translate. The way he said my name. The football. His strut. And sweet Jesus, the hats. How I felt when I was with him. And how I'd do anything to make him happy. How my heart stopped if his hand brushed mine because... Maybe this time. And then I just... Felt it. It was euphoric. It was confusing. It was that thing everybody talks about. Your first crush. I had mine. On a boy. On the boy. And I wished it would go away. But of course, it didn't go away. If this was what I was, I needed to find a book and research it. You know, typical me. I always have to read the instructions first. So in the fall, when we got back to campus, I found a textbook on gender and sexuality. And I was going to buy it because there's always a retail solution to any given problem. But then I read that, quote, some homosexual men, it was very clinical, will refer to each other in familiar social settings as she or girl, end quote. Okay, I will never do that, I thought. That's not me. I was a guy, and I would never sound like that. Completely repulsed, I clapped it shut, shelved it, and tore out of the bookstore with a squall of sun-speckled New York foliage swirling in my wake. Girl, if she could hear me now. I had a very similar reaction not long after when I tried phone sex for the first time. I didn't know it, you know, started after hello. As soon as the guy answered, he jumped right into it. I wasn't prepared. I was expecting a little banter at first. How's your day? Or decent weather? Something to warm me up a little. What I got was a breathy moan, followed by, yeah, man. He said he was 22 online, but he sounded like he was 22 when I was born. His voice was so gruff, too aggressive for my taste. And some of the stuff he said was stuff I'd never heard of. You know, at the time. Now I know what I'm doing, and I... Whatever. This was not hand-holding. I was curious to find out how this would end, though. And it felt inhumane to leave the guy hanging. So I offered a few encouragements and sallied it in the end. I did not want what she was having. This couldn't be for me. I was kind of relieved. Kind of. Still confused, I tried one more phone call. Kind of. The boy was raised a good Catholic boy, and he tried to go to church on Sundays, so maybe it was his influence. I won't argue that. But feeling a little lost that September, I went to church. As a kid, I went when I was made to go. We were Episcopalian. Empathy, hope, charity, that's what I remember. And seeing my mom pray before the service started. She'd cross herself and close her eyes, a tasteful bit of shadow showing, and disappear into her quiet conversation. I'd never done it myself, though. I didn't even know if they'd take my call. But I crossed myself, closed my eyes, and prayed for voicemail. I was scared, terrified and looking for directions. If this was the road I was supposed to be on, then okay, but I needed help. I needed to know that if not right away, I'd get to where I was supposed to be, even if I wasn't sure where that was just yet. 
that if I just kept walking, I wouldn't feel so different and so alone. I needed a sign. Then the priest said good morning. His voice was familiar, a little cartoony, Daffy Duck with less of a lisp, minus all the rage. I couldn't believe it. This had to be my sign. He sounded just like Wallace Shawn. Mr. Hall from Clueless. He even looked like him. I don't know that I've ever felt closer to a higher power than I did at that moment. The boy lived off campus that semester, but we still saw each other almost every day. Sometimes amidst mutual friends and our little group. Other times it was just us. I liked those best. I heard the rumors. I'm sure he did too. But if they bothered him, he never let on. The joke was that you never saw one of us without the other. We'd be rooming together the following semester and sharing a rental car, so the joke would travel and eventually land along with us in Los Angeles. L.A. reminded me of an amusement park. Nothing felt real. Everything had a lacquer of make-believe. Like me, and like living with the boy. When we grocery shopped, and when we went to Ikea together, it was everything I imagined a relationship would be. But I was the only one who felt the implied couplehood. One night, I made dinner. He got stuck in traffic, so I saved it in the oven for him. Yes, I was a 50s housewife. Instead of eating it on the couch next to me when he got in, settling in for an evening of Dawson's Creek, he ate it at the counter and told me he was going out with some guys to check out a bar where the nurses from ER hung out after taping. I responded like a good wasp, with the silent treatment, refrigerator door slams, and passive-aggressive dishwashing. The poor guy. He had no idea what was wrong. I barely knew. And I couldn't tell him. My mood seemed to rise and fall with my perceived level of our fake domestic bliss. If I clung too much and he pulled away, like after he told me it was a little weird that I planned a weekend in San Diego for just the two of us, because it was, I'd cling tighter and then realize I was being too clingy. Afterwards, I'd explain it away in a sentimental note, something sappy about friendship. Those times were few and far between, though. We really were best pals. We were too busy having the time of our lives, so whatever it was always passed by the next day. He was such a good guy. As the semester drew to a close, I started dropping hints about another summer visit for my 21st. But no matter how many times I said, when you come to Boston, or made reference to my upcoming milestone birthday, he'd just smile or laugh or playfully change the subject. He never took the bait. I knew why, too. It was that picture frame. I convinced myself one particularly low afternoon on Main Street that I needed to reach him somehow. I just wasn't trying hard enough. A gift. That would make things better. Because there's always a retail solution to any given problem. So I bought a picture frame at Disneyland. It was a dark chestnut with pewter accents. Classic good looks, timeless and simple. Just a few tasteful touches of Mickey. I put a picture in it of the two of us in a teacup. A pastel teacup, it's worth mentioning. Arms on each other's shoulders, best friends. Everything I was afraid to say to him. And everything I was afraid to admit to myself. 
was in a stylish gift bag waiting on his bed. It was all but me saying, I'm in love with you. And we make such a cute couple. I knew the truth. But it didn't stop my magical thinking. My wishes on lucky pennies and stars and every 1111. That he'd realized not just what stellar taste I had in frames and how much he loved the picture, but how much he loved me. He'd tell me he'd been waiting for me to say it first or that he wasn't sure until just now. Nothing happened, though. I never saw the frame again. When I asked him one day why it wasn't out, he asked what it would mean if he put it out and what a picture like that would represent. I had no answer. Not one I was prepared to give. It's funny, though, how emotionally resilient we are when we're young because those final weeks were strangely fine. 5998 the last page of my journal. Hope you had the time of your life. I quoted the Green Day song. It was everywhere that year. You couldn't get away from it on the radio. It was on the Seinfeld finale, and it was on my Discman. As the landing gear let go of Los Angeles, I caught some shots with my camera of the shore below as we began our bank away from make-believe. From 20-somethings in SoCal with a hot tub, from TV tapings and stars at the store, from Spice Worlds and Ferris wheels, from teacups and Kulakus. The boy and I said goodbye in Chicago, where we made our connections home. This one felt different from the one a year ago. There were no pink eyes, no promise of a trip. I wasn't even sure there'd be a hug. And we were supposed to be living together in the fall. We just stood in the terminal with our baggage. I grabbed his shoulders with both hands and squeezed them. Please tell me I haven't lost you. I haven't been myself, and I can explain. I, I just need some time, is what I wanted to say. When I opened my mouth, nothing came out. He sighed and looked down at his Doc Martens. Then his eyes met mine from under that hat. I gave him a half-smile and raised my eyebrows like, I know, and I'm sorry. He gave me one back as if to say, I know, and I'm sorry too. Then we hugged. I felt a tear beginning to pool. He was such a good guy. We weren't broken. We needed to mend. We needed space and time. It's always the way it goes. <laughs> 